Great, well, Andrew's already prayed, so please have your Bibles open and we'll get cracking straight away. Now, C.S. Lewis, the Christian author who wrote uh, Mere Christianity and the Screwtape Letters, um, most famous for writing the series of novels called The Chronicles of Narnia, he once said, if Christianity is false, it's of no importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Tonight we'll be looking together at the resurrection of Jesus, of which the essence of this quote applies. So if it's true, it's of infinite significance. If false, well, it's of no importance whatsoever. Paul writes something similar in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13 to 14. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So if Paul's preaching is made useless by there being no resurrection, then my preaching is useless also. There's no need to listen to me, switch off now or go home, whatever, it doesn't matter. Paul goes as far as saying if the resurrection isn't true, our faith is useless. We don't need to meet here tonight, go home, it doesn't matter. We can all just go home now, have an early tea, go to bed early, it doesn't matter. Makes no difference. But if the resurrection is true, it's of infinite significance. It's of eternal significance. Now Paul is sure of the risen Jesus because, well, He was confronted by him on the road to Damascus. He met him. And actually tonight, we're going to be confronted by the risen Jesus too, through God's word. The big question, I guess, is how are you going to respond to the evidence there? Okay, so look at chapter 16, verse 8. The women who encounter the empty tomb, how do they respond? Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out, fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now Mark often draws a contrast between faith and fear. The women don't understand, and so they respond, not in faith, but in fear. And remain afraid in this broken world of rubbish, of sin, of death. But for those who understand who Jesus is, what he's, what he's done for us, the significance of the resurrection, there isn't a need to fear these things. There's no need to fear death or sin or this world because, well, Jesus is far greater, far more powerful, far more glorious than these things. He is the resurrected king the king of the universe, who loves his people and is for his people. So the question is, how will you respond to him this evening? Mark was confronted with the truth of the risen Jesus. His response was to follow him and to write down what we have here in front of us. As he puts it in right at the beginning, Mark chapter 1 verse 1, he says, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. The whole way through Mark, he's been stacking the evidence for us so that kind of at the climaxes of each half of Mark, we're convinced that Jesus really is the Christ. So we shout with Peter, yes, he's the Christ. And he really is the Son of God. So we shout with the centurion in 1539 that he really is the Son of God. The whole way, the whole way through Mark, we've seen why that's good news. Simply put, Jesus has come to call sinners like me, like you. But he's come not to be served, but to serve and to die as a ransom for many. He's come to call sinners and die for them on their behalf. And this was achieved at the cross, which we looked at last week. Jesus was crucified for what's true of him. So I don't know if you noticed that last week. He, was, he had this kingly robe on him. People even mocked him and cried out, Hail, King of the Jews! And he was even crowned with a crown of thorns. He was literally crucified for what is true of him. He was the crucified king. Well, now Mark seeks to convince us of a real resurrection, that he is truly the resurrected king. But a real resurrection, well, that presupposes a real death. And so Mark's going to stack the evidence for us to prove Jesus, the crucified king, really did die and became Jesus, the buried king. And that's going to be the kind of first heading, first point. Jesus was the buried king. And that's verses 40 to 47 in chapter 15. So looking down at verse 40. Mark starts with some primary witnesses. So if you remember in Mark chapter 14, Jesus says that his followers, the 12 that he's chosen, are all going to follow, uh, fall away and desert him. As the shepherd is struck, they will flee. And that's exactly what happens. There's no one left. So in come some women to um, fill the gap. Fill the gap of primary witnesses. But don't worry, verse 41, these women have followed Jesus and cared for his needs. They are followers of Jesus, but they stand at a distance in verse 40, watching. Mark's going to focus a lot on what they see. And what do they see? Well, they see their Lord, the one who they followed, the one who they've loved, the one who they've cared for, crucified, hanging on a cross. There's no mistaking him for anyone else. They followed him actually since Galilee. So Jesus, the crucified king, hangs there and these women see it. We can be sure that Jesus really was the one who was on that cross. Well, verse 42, it's preparation day. For any of us that aren't Jews here, Mark helps us. That's the day before the Sabbath. It's preparation day. And so as evening approaches, Joseph of Arimathea a respectable and honoured member of the council, went boldly to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. Now, some people disagree okay, um, as to whether Joseph wants to kind of bury Jesus uh, because he came to follow him, and this is his, um, his kind of Messiah who he wants to respect, and this is like an act of kind of devotion to his Christ, or whether he simply you know, wanted to take the body down and bury it because the Old Testament teaches that the land where 
a body hangs on a tree will become defiled. People kind of argue either way, but it doesn't really make a difference because there's something that I want to challenge with us here. You see, Joseph here is willing to risk his reputation, even his job, by associating with the hated Jesus. And if a man who Mark says in verse 43 is just waiting for the kingdom of God, and if he's willing to make a stand like this, well, how much more should we, who are in the kingdom, who know and love Jesus, be willing to risk absolutely everything? That's what we as a church have signed up to, isn't it? To pray, go, invite because we believe God works through us, because we believe people need to hear of Jesus, because we believe there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. Well, the challenge is, are we willing to risk everything, to identify as his, to associate with him even when he's hated and despised by the world? It doesn't matter whether you think Joseph's act is one of devotion to Jesus or not. There's no doubt what Mark wants us to get from verse 42 to 46. Jesus is dead and buried. Proper dead. Verse 43, Joseph goes to Pilate to ask for the body. But Pilate's a bit surprised to hear that Jesus already died. Some crucifixions can take literally days, so three hours is not very long at all. Pilate, surprised, calls in the centurion, asks him if he's already dead. The centurion gives the nod, confirms he's dead, and so Pilate gives the body, or quite literally the corpse, to Joseph. Now there's a theory, let's call it the swoon theory, that suggests Jesus only kind of looked like he was dead, or, and was kind of like unconscious. He was kind of near death, um, but after taking him down, he kind of regained consciousness, regained his strength, and then persuaded people that he'd risen. Well, to suggest this kind of flies in the face of the evidence that Mark stacks for us. He gives us primary witnesses. He gives us the women who see it all. And then he confirms what they see with Joseph, with Pilate, and with the centurion. Not to mention what happens next. Joseph um, takes the body and wraps it in linen cloth, places it in a tomb, and rolls the stone in front of the tomb so that no animals and um, no grave robbers could enter and, and take the body, and no nearly dead people can escape. Evidence stacked. Jesus is dead and buried. And verse 47, we're told our primary witnesses see it all. They witness his death, yes, and now they witness where he was laid as well. I just want us to think about that for a second, that Jesus actually really died. Like, I know we say it a lot, but Jesus really died on behalf of his people. God's own son, the glorious son of God, through whom the whole universe came into being, steps into his own creation, is then rejected by it, and slain. He's the one who... Paul speaks of in Philippians 2, 6-8, and he says, Him who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to, be used, uh, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he did it for our sake. Mark 10:45 says he came to serve us, to die as a ransom for us, to die on our behalf. How amazing. Jesus, the Son of God, died for each of us. Well, if Mark sought to convince us with the evidence that Jesus really died and was the buried king, now, in chapter 16, his attention turns to convincing us he's the resurrected king. He didn't just stay dead, but he's alive. And that's kind of the second heading, the second point, if you're taking notes. Jesus is the resurrected king. Verse 1, the same women who saw Jesus dead and buried are going to be the same women who will see the empty tomb. So the Sabbath's over, and our primary witnesses, um, the original Spice Girls, head off to the tomb, yeah, it's poor, isn't it? Sorry. Um, head off to the tomb to anoint Jesus. It's just after sunrise, perhaps suggesting hope, but definitely telling us it's light enough for them to get the right tomb. Um, but, but on their way, they kind of hit a snag. So, you know, what about that large stone that sealed the tomb that stops people from going in? Who's going to move it for them? Uh, well, it's okay because verse 4, when they look up, they see that the stone's rolled away. Well, thrown away is the literal word. It's thrown. They go expecting a closed tomb to anoint a dead body. And what do they get? Well, they get an empty, uh, they get an open tomb. And they get an empty one. Well, not quite. Not quite an empty one. Because as they enter the tomb, they see a young man dressed in white. Almost certainly an angel. A messenger with a word from God. And the women are alarmed. The man tries to calm them down before bringing the word from God, which interprets the evidence to them. He says, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. You're looking for the crucified one, the one you witnessed died and then buried, laid in this tomb, the one you expected to have to anoint. Well, you don't. Okay, he's not here. He's risen. He's not here. See, see, look, see the place where they laid him. The women have the evidence of the empty tomb and all the past events of Jesus' life, I guess, interpreted by this word. He has risen. Jesus is no longer the buried king. He's alive. He's the resurrected king. They're told to go. Tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There, there you will see him, just as he told you. Jesus has been crucified, put to death, just as he said he would. He's risen, just as he said he would. And now, verse 7, you will see him in Galilee, just as he said, just as he told you. What do the women do? Well, we've already seen that they respond in fear. They flee from the tomb and they say nothing because they're afraid. The women 
respond in fear to the truth of the risen Lord Jesus. It's quite an abrupt ending, isn't it? You have to admit Mark's being historically very honest to end his writings like this. It would be ridiculous, isn't it? If you were making this up, you just wouldn't end it like this. But it is true, and he did write it. In fact, the fact that he wrote it is evidence in and of itself that Jesus really did rise and his disciples really did see him in Galilee. Otherwise, why write it? And often in the Bible, open endings leave us wondering, don't they? How how might we respond? After all this evidence that Mark's kind of been stacking throughout the whole book, but particularly here, after all this evidence given about who Jesus is and and why he came and, and what it means to follow him, Mark then leaves us with that thought, well, how, how might we respond to all this evidence? That, you know, how might we respond to the, to the buried king who became the resurrected king and who's reigning and ruling forevermore? Well, the resurrection is very, very, very important. And I've got three kind of application points to kind of um, maybe go away with or challenges or, or yeah. Um, Jesus' resurrection means his word is true and reliable. So Jesus said he'd die and rise again on at least three separate occasions in Mark. Um, Chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 30 to 31, and chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. If he stayed dead, then his word would be false. And it, it wouldn't be trustworthy. You can, again, just go home. But his resurrection proves his word is true. In 16, verse 7, what does he say? He says, the message is to Peter and the disciples. Go to Galilee. There they're going to see Jesus just as he said. Just as he told you. Because of the resurrection, they can trust his word is true. And we can trust his word is true. His word about us. That our biggest problem is our sin. Our willful rebellion against God. Our, our rejection of him as God over us. That, that's our biggest problem. But we can also trust him. When he says he came to call sinners. And that he has the authority and the power to forgive sinners. We can believe that he came to die as a ransom for many. Uh, for me. For you. And because of the resurrection, we need to listen to that. We need to believe that word's true. And we need to respond as he commands us to, by repenting, by turning to God through faith in Jesus who alone can save us. We need to repent and believe. And the resurrection doesn't just mean that his word's true and reliable, but it also means there is restoration for ruined sinners. We can trust his dying on our behalf is, is both sufficient and effective to save us, to, to reconcile us and God. We actually see it in action. I don't know if you noticed this. In Mark sixteen seven. look at verse 7. It's just two words we see it in action. 
Okay, let me read verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Did you spot the two words? And Peter. Why, why say and Peter? He's a disciple as well. He's covered in when he says go and tell the disciples. Why, why would you say and Peter? Well, Peter, if you remember in chapter 14, is the one who says, I'll never, I'll never fall away. Even if I'm to die with you, Jesus, I'll never disown you. But he's also the one who denies Jesus so terribly, just a bit further on in the same chapter. So I say, and Peter, well, grace. Peter, the arch denier the giant flop of a disciple who disowns Jesus well he's restored and forgiven because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus because of his grace because of his ransom his ransom isn't just sufficient for Peter though it's sufficient for me and it's sufficient for you too I don't know if you're like me, but you feel like a bit of a failure as a Christian. I mean, even today, like I feel like I've just been rubbish. Let alone this week, let alone this year, let alone my lifetime. I am a ruined sinner. But actually, there is restoration for ruined sinners in Jesus. I don't know if you feel like you've sinned, too much this week for God to forgive you or you know, you've just repeated the same sin again and again and again. Or maybe you just feel like actually this week I've not made much of a stand for Jesus. Or perhaps you've just rejected his truth your whole life. Well, I urge you, run to Jesus because his grace can reconcile, forgive and restore you too. His ransom is sufficient, and we know this because he's risen. Jesus really, really does restore ruined sinners. And do you notice who he's restoring? His disciples and Peter. They're the ones who are going to see Jesus. They're the ones who are going to take the gospel to the whole world. Bit of a contrast with the women in verse 8, who say absolutely nothing. You see, it's only as we experience restoration ourselves through God's grace. It's only as we understand and see Jesus by faith that we, we will be open to speak, to, speak of him. If we, if we don't understand, if we, if we don't respond in faith, but maybe more, more in fear like the women, we're going to be silent. It's only as we grasp the enormity of who the risen Lord Jesus is and what he's done in restoring sinners, in restoring us, that we will be open to telling others of him. Well, finally, the resurrection means Jesus is worth following because he's the one that's conquered death. The most fearful thing, I think, in this world, death. Well, Jesus has conquered it. He's living, powerful, able to help, willing to help. That sounds like a king worth following to me. 
In Mark 8, 34 and 35, Jesus tells us what it means to be a follower of him. Whoever wants to be my disciple, he says, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is a drastic call, okay? Jesus is calling us to die to ourselves, to to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for God by living for Jesus and his gospel. If you die now, as in if you die to self, and live for God by faith, you will be vindicated, you will live, you will save your life. But if you ignore Christ, avoiding the cost of following him because it's just too hard or I just, it doesn't, it's not worth it, well, he says, you will lose your life in the future. How we respond to the Lord Jesus is very, very important. There is um, salvation in him. Well, the women at the empty tomb, verse 8, Confronted with the evidence of the risen Jesus, interpreted by God's word, tremble, they're bewildered, they don't really understand, and they flee. They're, they're, they're too scared. Well, we're in the same boat, okay? We actually have the exact same evidence as these women at this point. Okay? The exact same evidence. And we have God's word to interpret it. The women, what do they do? Well, they respond in fear. They don't understand the resurrection. And instead of responding in faith, they run away scared. And I think Mark writes that, that you might understand that actually if you respond to Jesus by faith, you too will see Jesus as they will see Jesus. And so it's almost like a final call to not respond like them, but to respond in repentance and belief and to find forgiveness. So let me leave you with um, just this question, I guess. How are you going to respond tonight to the resurrected king?